Hey, it's Steve and welcome to Share, a podcast that sets out to do just that. From stories and reflections to ideas and concepts, each episode will dive into a wide range of topics and discussions that come from a journey through life. The simple fact I've discovered is when we share, we empower, not just ourselves, but each other. In this week's episode, I caught up with my brother, Mark Hodgson, the founder of Mind and Body Travel. Mark has an extensive knowledge and experience, having spent over 18 years within the travel industry. In our chat, we had the opportunity to dive into a number of topics ranging from life to business, touch on the personal challenges that come with redundancy, and also discuss how we each define success. He also shares his vision around travel and how he'd like to inspire us all to approach it a little differently to ensure we're keeping our wellness and well-being in mind. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did recording it. Mark, welcome to Share. Thanks, Steve. Good to be here. Yeah. How's things going in your world? Uh Busy. Travel is back, certainly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, nice and busy. It's uh, great to see people getting out there and exploring once again. Something you expected post-pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. We knew it was going to come back. Even you know, in my time in the travel industry, we've always talked about pent-up demand after the GFC and after other big events. So, yeah, it, it always happens. And how many years in the travel industry now? I think I'm up to about 18 now. Give us a bit of a snapshot on that career, you know, the journey you've been through? It's, it's been amazing. And it started with a, a pretty big life change. I was in hospitality for about 12 years and got to the point where I couldn't drag myself out of bed anymore and decided I wanted to do something for myself. I, was, I think I was 29, 30, just yeah, became a travel consultant, probably halved my salary, um, but did something totally different and something that I was going to be, you know, I could get excited about. And and so I started from the ground up, but uh, I think I progressed very quickly. I probably had a different role every year or two as I got promoted or moved around into different roles. So I started as a you know, trainee travel consultant to running a, a national brand that was turning over about $600 million in, in travel sales. So yeah, it's been a good ride. Yeah. And obviously you, you've started your own brand mm-hmm. and that was back in 2019. Yes, I got spat out of corporate world, as I call it. You know, probably the quintessential middle-aged male being made redundant and then trying to reinvent myself. So it was good, though, because it probably gave me the kick along I needed to do something different. And I felt like I really wanted to just get back out to grassroots and look after clients with their travel experiences. And I felt like I could do it well. And that's kind of why I wanted to get out and start my own business in the travel space, but with a, a little bit of a difference with, you know, looking after people and inspiring them to, to travel better, I call it. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely want to dig into the uh, the travel, but if I can just step back on on that redundancy side of things, what did, what did you learn through that time? <sighs> wow. Uh, there's a couple of things. I remember back being, I knew I wasn't happy. I wasn't fulfilled in my role, but... I did feel trapped to a salary and I'm sure heaps of people in that situation, you know, when you've got a family mortgage, all the cost that with that, I felt like I was trapped to my salary and there was no way out. And it's interesting that the redundancy was the kick along that I needed that made me realize oh, I, I can do something different. So the first thing I learned was that you're not trapped, even though, you can't see a way out without my hand being forced. I don't know how I would have done it or if I would have done it. So that, that would be learning number one. Learning number two for me was it's business. It's not about you. So I did go through a period where you know, sort of, well, they don't want me. And that, that's a kick in the guts. And I, I've spoken to many people about redundancies that have gone through the same process and they've all gone through that period. Just depends how quickly you can get out of it. But at the end of the day, it's business. You know, you if you're working for a company that's got to restructure and 
cut costs, get rid of roles. The funny thing was I was actually in a boardroom meeting helping whiteboard the structure for the department that I was in and I sat there and realised, hmm, I don't have a box on this whiteboard even though I'd helped do that structure. So anyway. How did, um, how did that realisation feel? Oh, I think it was okay. Like I kind of subconsciously knew that probably need to do something different anyway. So yep. so that was a good learning. And then the other learning was I worked for the same company for 12 years and my whole network was within that company. And so coming out of that, I felt like I was absolutely starting from scratch with networking and you know, trying to look at what options were out there for me. Yep, yep, yep. I think redundancy is a big thing, especially for especially for men. Obviously, we've got a number of friends that have gone through that process and you see them kind of feel a bit lost. Is that how you felt? Yes. I had a good amount of time for reflection. I think I had about eight months off and you know, repainted the house, got my grass looking the best in the street. You know, the usual checklist, I think, for anyone that takes a redundancy. But the day when I realized I needed to get a job was when I started doing a lot of baking. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> now I probably need to get a job now. So, um, but I think the, the reflection and reinventing yourself is, it's hard but necessary to go through that process. And my biggest epiphany, if we call it that, was I think I was, painting the house at the time, listening to Neil Diamond, family had gone to work in school. And I had this realization that I was 40. And if I work till I'm 65, I've got more of my life or my career ahead of me than behind me. And that freaked me out, but also excited me at the same time, because all of a sudden, I had 25 years to reinvent myself. Mm -hmm. And so you realize how long your career is. When you get made redundant at, at 40. Yep. Through your time in the travel industry, who's had the most impact, you know, in corporate or, you know, from the people that you've met, who's had the most impact on your career? Ooh, not a good question. There's been a lot of people that have probably given me a, a crack. I think when I was working in stores and I sheepishly applied for an area management role and didn't think I had a chance. My stores were going okay, but you know they weren't up in lights as the, the flagship most profitable stores in the company. But the state manager at the time actually gave me a crack. And that was probably a pivotal moment for me to go, oh, my confidence, like, okay, I'll, I can have a crack here. You know, his name was Darren. And I think he was potentially the most influential person from a, I guess, a key moment, tipping point to sort of feel like he saw within me what I felt a lot of other people didn't. Yep. Yeah, that, that, that's cool. That's, that's good when people can actually see your worth when others don't. Yeah. And through that process of obviously the positions you've been in, you know, there's some instances where you've kind of had that fear of, you know, public speaking or fear of, of doing something that you've kind of broken through that. And, and how was that process? That, it's That's a really interesting one, actually, because... I'm an introvert at heart, but I've been up on stage hosting a conference of 600 people and feeling really confident. Hmm. So it, it is true that you know, sometimes introverts in a cocktail party room or networking room of 15 or 20 people, that is so much scarier than speaking in front of hundreds of people. But it was forced on me and it just became a way of life you know, as a area manager or I would run monthly sales awards evening. So my hundred staff there and I'd have to get up and just do it. That grew over time to running conferences and training sessions and awards nights. I remember one of the biggest awards nights I ran was probably seven or 800 people down in Melbourne. And my senior leadership team, I said to them, look, I think it would be great. We were kind of new as a team. I said, it'd be great for you want to join me on stage giving out awards. I didn't think anything else of it because, you know, it's, I'm used to just getting up and doing it. And it was eventually a big learning for me because the first round of awards I got up 
my uh, colleague that I'd got up with me was standing there and physically shaking. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, I've totally missed how they were feeling, which sort of brought me back to reality a bit of the magnitude of doing some of that stuff for people. Yeah. Yep. Through your work and, and life through travel as well, how has your view of success changed throughout that time? That's a roller coaster, I reckon. I think in your 20s, you're just having a crack. I call your 20s blind ambition. You don't, you don't necessarily know what you're doing and you're just having a crack and trying to make something of yourself. And then your 30s starts to balance out a little bit. You know, you're still really ambitious. Your success is still about the car, the house, the salary, all those materialistic things. And then I think in your 40s, you start to work it out a bit and, and find that balance. And I know I've told you the story about a day when I just wasn't feeling it and a period in my life that I wasn't feeling successful and was in my old neighbourhood where I grew up. And I drove past the house that I grew up in and I said to myself, geez, imagine if I went back to my 10-year-old self living in this very working-class suburban house and said, when you're 40, you would have travelled the world, you'd have a nice home, beautiful children and wife, your children going to a nice private school and getting good grades, you know, driving nice cars, having good friends and relationships and networks. And when I was 10 years old, I would have said, sign me up. Yep. Like that that would have been ab- absolute success when I was 10. But here I am now and I don't always feel successful. So it is a constant battle. Why do you think that is that? Oh, comparisons. I think we all like to compare. We always look at who's doing better than us or what the expectations in life are. Whether that's real or not. Well, we create our own reality there. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So obviously went through redundancy. Tell me tell me where the seed was planted or, or where mind and body travel was born. So two key things there. Obviously, I've spent a long time in travel and I love it. Who doesn't love travel? It's such an amazing thing that we get to do. So that in itself is exciting. But there was a frustration of being in the travel industry and seeing a lot of people not travel how they should or how I think they should. And what I mean by that is it's the holiday they want, not the holiday they need. And so I would see clients come in that are super busy, stressed out to the hill, nearing burnout, and then they go and book a holiday that is racing around Europe in two weeks, seeing 10 cities, and then come back And how have they improved themselves or how have they travelled that's actually going to make them ready to go for the next sprint of life? I call it the next sprint, you know, the next three to six, nine months before they have another break. Yep. To me, that doesn't make sense, but a lot of people book holidays that actually not what they need. And so there's a real frustration there. And I think a lot of good businesses come from frustration. How can I actually make a difference here. So there's a frustration piece, but then there's also a uh, life experience piece, I'd say, because I did burn myself out and had to work on myself for quite a number of years. I think the redundancy was probably the catalyst there to, you don't realise how much adrenaline you are working, you're running on until you actually get voted off the island and then you realise, wow, I wasn't in a very good place at all, both mentally and physically. I I think back to a time where one of my area managers, I rang them and and started to have a conversation and they said, Mark, we had this conversation yesterday. And I look back at that now and go, wow, that, that is chronic stress when you start to forget important conversations that you've had with colleagues. That burnout for me taught me a lot. And so if I blend travel with burnout and self-care, it really is about, well, how do you use travel to better yourself? That could be a number of different things. If you're in a really high stress, fast paced role, then you probably need a holiday that's actually going to counteract that and refresh you. A holiday where you can reconnect with your family, because if you're in a high stress role, you're probably not spending much time at home, right? 
That's right. So how do you design a holiday that helps you refresh your mind and body and creates an environment where you can have some connection time with your family, but maybe some experiences with your family that's going to bring you all together? Now, if you're just being made redundant, as another example, and you're a little bit lost or you don't have any clear goals in life, well, maybe you need to go and hike the Inca Trail or Trek Kokoda or go and see the Northern Lights in Norway or just something that's going to inspire you or really get you fired up. And so there's different, you know, I guess, what what is the purpose of your holiday? What do you need to get out of it? Not your Instagram reel or not your ego. Yep. And that's, that's where Mind and Body Travel was born. Yeah, absolutely. Opened in 2019. Mm-hmm. Come through burnout, redundancy, into opening a travel business in 2019. How did that go uh, as we headed into 2020? It was building nicely. Uh, so, you know, 2020 was looking good because obviously there's a, there's a big lag with travel. What you're booking now, people are traveling in six, nine, 12 months, et cetera. So you've got to invest the time to build it over the longer term. And so I had a great year building my business and then March 2020 just had to put in the reverse and then unwind it all. So I'm a pretty optimistic person. I'll always see the uh, the silver lining, but it did get tough there for a while where you're, you're basically you're working full time for no income. Yeah. And actually negative income because you're actually giving money back and you're working hard to get money from suppliers so you can give money back. So it's sort of like, it was like a pro bono year that was kind of soul destroying at times as well, because you go from booking these amazing experiences for people to stuck in logistics and canceling holidays. And yeah, it was, I remember there was about a month where I was wallowing, but I got myself out of that. You had a pity party for one. Yeah. So tell me going through that time though, from my reflection was, and we've got friends that are in the travel industry, they were being made redundant, being laid off. And that was probably a little bit of a relief for them. But when you own a travel business, you can't just walk out the door and, and you know, throw away the keys. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So I was fortunate in a way that as I was building the business, I was doing some business consulting on the side. And that was a bit of a proactive approach to go, well, I need some income stability to support the household and the family uh, while I built the travel business. And so that worked out to be a masterstroke because I didn't know what was coming, but uh, it gave me income throughout COVID. So I wasn't under pressure as much as maybe others that were solely relying on income. And, you know, the chat groups in the travel industry with my colleagues there was some people that literally not sure how they're going to put food on the table for their family, like absolute wit's end. And that was really tough. And I think the hardest thing for the travel industry was no one felt like society or the government understood the travel industry. The travel industry had to campaign hard to get noticed. It was quite weird actually, because there was other industries that were probably less affected were probably more the poster childs or, or for the government to look after during that time. So it was quite tough. And because I already had a role and my business was new and I didn't employ anyone, I didn't get any grant. Every funding and grant that came out, there was some loophole that I didn't tick a certain box on. So I went through COVID without any assistance at all. And that was and the that was an the issue. Travel industry, the, the travel industry was the, like you couldn't sell a product because you couldn't travel. Yep. So that was, that was tough, but, you know, I got over that pretty quick. What got you through that time, Mark, pushing through, you giving money out, no money coming in? What was the focus that you had the determination to, to see the light at the end of a tunnel, which we couldn't see very early on? <laughs> well, I, I think my optimism and I've always been a long-term thinker. You know, do good things, good things will come. Look after my customers now. They will be loyal. They'll come back. They'll tell their friends. And that did happen. You know, my business is growing exponentially, which 
which is good. But you've kind of just got to have the faith, I think, in life that if I do the right thing and I have good intentions and I have a vision of where I want this to go, it will generally work out. It won't be a smooth, smooth ride, but it will generally work out. Do you think the travel industry's learned stuff from COVID? <laughs> I actually don't know. I reckon that we, I think the travel industry as a whole is going to forget COVID very quickly and I think it already has. It's like whenever anything big happens, I think Australians are quite resilient and we forget very easily as well, right? So when 9-11 happened, it hit the travel industry hard. Six or nine months later, everyone's over it, forgotten about it, travelling again. And so I think the travel industry is probably back to the point where it almost was. And I think if if a COVID-style thing happened again, it's going to be really difficult. A lot of companies have trimmed down cost bases and things like that, so they're a little bit smarter. But at the end of the day, travel is a volume game. Flyers, airlines, cruise lines, it's volume, right? So whenever you're in a volume game, if something major happens not going to be pretty. Yeah, you said earlier, travel's going well for you. I know looking at my Instagram feed and Facebook feed and myself being on holidays recently, I, I don't think too many people are still left in Australia or not many anyway over over the summer European and, and US mm-hmm. holidays. But obviously, how's travel going now? This year has been strong and you know, prices are high, but people are still traveling. I would say you know, we're in August now, interest rates are peaking there's been a bit more price sensitivity start to come to the surface. Now I can see, you know, probably about three or four months ago, I saw some clients all of a sudden start to just question some pricing and, oh, you know, can we do better here or things like that? Whereas last year when people were doing their first trip post-COVID, it's like, well, if that's what I've got to pay, you know, if I've got to pay $3,800 to go to Europe in June in economy, I'll pay it. Pre-COVID, they would have said, I'm not going if that's what I've got to pay. So it's it's still quite strong and I think what's happened is probably a two-speed economy a little bit with regards to you know, people that have got good equity in their homes still, have got themselves in a good position, maybe they're in good roles, maybe they own a business. That group, including retirees as well, they're still travelling. Obviously, doing some consulting through that COVID point. Uh, you and I have had some chats around that you were recruiting people uh, into into a number of businesses there. What were your reflections on how employment and recruitment changed through that COVID time? Geez, it's weird now, isn't it? It's There's no patterns in recruitment and employment now. I think intentions as a business, if your intentions are right, you know, to to run a good business with good values, look after your people, look after your customers, do the right thing. I still think that that's powerful in attracting people. It makes It's hard in acquisition, but it's better in retention from an employment point of view. So if you can attract the right talent, then you can keep them if you're running a business with purpose and, and values. Yep. But it did, during COVID, you could tell people that were just riding the JobKeeper train and they, they were just applying for jobs because they wanted to keep that going. Hopefully some of those people either studied or did some courses or what have you, but uh, yeah, it certainly sorted out who's who's got good intentions or who's just after a job. Yep. Yep. Mm. And, and I think in, in these days they talk about the quiet quitting, just doing what you have to, do the minimum, those kind of things. And like I know when I grew up through my teens and through work, that's not never going to get you anywhere. I think one of the most powerful thing in life is your intention. And I listened to a keynote speaker years ago at a conference and he talked about that people will always sense your intention. And it's really interesting because if you think about that, well, yeah, the people that you like or hang out with, generally they're good people and people that you feel like you want in your network. So I think if you've got the right intention, everything sorts itself out. Yep. But if your intentions are just a sponge off handouts or just take opportunities and then not have any, I guess, level of care, 
the free ride is going to run out, isn't it? Yep, it like, sure is. Because so values and intentions and all those sorts of wholesome, important core facets of life, they're never going to go away. Yeah. And I look at the pressure on, obviously, we've both got teenage boys, but I see the pressure on the younger generation to, you know, they're looking at Instagram, they're looking at Facebook, they're seeing people drive the Lambos, you know, go on the great holidays and you're only going to go on that yacht. Oh, I should go on a super yacht. All these things that are kind of obviously out there, uh, the kind of fake it till you make it, I think sometimes I can, the boys will will show me sometimes or they'll flick me an Instagram reel and I'll go, uh, that's fake. I can see straight through it, you know, but they're absorbing it like I, I've got to have a super yacht. I've got to have a Lambo. Actually, I've got to have five Lambos, two Porsches, a house on the water, all those things to be successful. Like, and that's, that's a real big pressure um, when it comes to that younger generation. Mm, yeah. And, and in the travel space, geez, I see that all the time, that, you know, I love the Instagram versus reality reels on social media because you know, we, we were just in the in Rome a few weeks ago and there would have been 2,000 people at the Trevi Fountain, 2,000 people. Yeah. Like, that might be conservative. And if, you know, you're just trying to get, everyone's just trying to get their shot for Instagram or what have you, like, that's not an experience. That's a tick the box, look at me, I'm at the Trevi Fountain. And, yeah, travel, I think, for the younger generation, it's weird because when we were growing up, our, our generation, I think there was a real intrepid traveller type of sense, you know, backpacking, go and really experience the world and cultures. That's There's still those travellers, but Instagram and social media has created these new sort of travellers where the people that were backpacking 20 years ago, that generation are staying in five-star hotels and and expecting like this luxury trip. So it's definitely changed. Yeah, their expectations of of what's out there. You know, I have said to a couple of people recently, oh, you know, both young couples, I've said, oh, now why don't you go and do a Kentucky or just go through Europe? And, and they're like, oh, no, 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 the accommodation's not good. Oh, I wouldn't stay in a hostel or... <laughs> Or those kind of things, but you know, twenty years ago, that's what people were doing, and some of the experiences and some of the, I suppose, things that people uh, travelled to, things they did, things they saw, the people they met, this community that they built. So many people have got so, so many strong stories. Yeah, that's that's where you really learn and understand a culture. Um, I was talking to uh, a client the other day that went to Cambodia recently, and. She did this day tour in Cambodia. The guy took her back to his house and met his family and they were on a rice farm and um, she got to grind rice the or mill rice the, you know, the traditional way and stuff like that. It was a real bespoke, raw and personal experience. We need more of that. Yeah, I agree. And that's something that probably Trace and I have kind of brought in and that kind of really fills my cup when we go on holiday. I know we went to Vanuatu on a cruise and we stopped at every location and I'd walk up to the driver and say, I don't want to see anything on the brochure. Take me, take me somewhere, you know. And that one case that was on the um, island of Lafau, we went out and the driver was actually a, a minister, like a priest in a community village up in, so 45 minutes in his car up to the village and, it was interesting because we got there and at the time the boys were probably six and eight or something like that. I remember them saying, oh, where do they plug their iPads in? Right? Like they, <laughs> there was no iPads. They had, I remember it, I can see it right now. They had a, a log and on top of the log was where people put their phones and there was one PowerPoint. And they're like, Ooh. What? You know, and then we were talking to a guy that was making his carver. It was just a completely different world, you know, and I think that's, as parents, I think for our kids, we've got to show these experiences because I think sometimes they're they're some of the best experiences that you can have. Absolutely. And where I'd like to see travel go is to blend a lot of the experiences in with the bucket list items as well. I, 
So rather than if someone was doing Europe, rather than doing Rome, Milan, Paris, you know, the, and seeing the Eiffel Tower of the Colosseum, whatever, you can still do that because that's important for people. And it, you know, there's some great architecture and history there, but don't make your trip 100% that. How can you make maybe your trip 50% seeing the, the sites that you want to see, but 50% going and seeing some off the beaten track villages or go and rent a villa in some little village in Italy somewhere and just experience that local village and culture. And um, I was talking to someone the other day and they said, oh, yeah, like when, when the guy at the local coffee shop starts to recognise you, and that might be like sort of three days in a row in a little village, but how nice is that when you feel like you're part of a society or a village or a little, you know, you're almost becoming a pseudo-local. That's a great feeling. You also feel that authentic kindness in those villages, in those areas, because they're not just trying to suck whatever they can out of the, the tourists. They're there wanting, they're proud of their community. They're proud of their village and they want to show people and they, there's this, just this genuine kindness. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You want to see the real people. And I think that's really important. So at the end of the day, and the tagline for my business is inspire you, you want inspiration from your holiday. So is, and I'll, a great example is taking the kids to Disneyland. Right, so it's a bucket list item for many parents and children. But what would be more inspiring as a family to do an experience Disneyland for four or five days or maybe Disneyland for two days and jump in the car and then have a few nights up in a cabin in Yosemite National Park. So you can blend the traditional, typical bucket list things that people want to do, but do something a little bit different. Surely children are going to be wowed by those massive sequoia trees you know, in California, in those national parks, the waterfalls. Some of the scenery is spectacular. How does that compare to spending $1,000 a day at Disneyland, lining up, being stressed and being in with, you know, thousands of people? They're the sort of, I guess, comparisons or questions I like to pose when I'm talking to clients. And have you had any experiences where you've kind of asked them questions, inputted a few of those ideas, and then they've come back to you? It is a successful approach. It's amazing how often that works and it takes a bit of courage when you're in you know i'm in a sales business if i don't sell holidays i don't i don't uh, make an income so you don't want to scare your clients off but you want to inspire them a bit okay well have you thought about this the minute you say have you thought about this you get their interest it's 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 really interesting and i liken it to I'm going to show my age here, but on a Saturday night, sometimes I'll watch Escape to the Country on ABC. I'm sure you know the show. They show three houses that the person has asked for, and then they do a mystery house. And that is something that is a little bit different to what the client has asked for, but might be a bit unique or exciting. And it's amazing how often that is picked because people don't know what they actually want. So I call that so that, that mystery house concept I do a lot with travel and, and it quite often is the piece when we end up booking something that's a little bit unique or different, that's the piece that they come back and say, that was our favourite part. Yep. And that's the difference between we look in the travel industry and, and over the years I've booked a lot of travel. Thank you. Yes, yes. <laughs> Good customer. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. But the interesting thing I find is that a lot of people say you walk into a travel agency and you say, look, I want to go to the US. I want to do this, 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 and this, right? There's an order taking approach. Hmm. But from my experience, and obviously we've we've got a lot of, lot of mutual friends and family that have used you as well. One of the key things is I, and I've said this to you, I see you as a travel coach. Hmm. Yep, absolutely. I, I think of that term a lot when I'm reflecting on the business is that and sometimes I call myself the fun police as well. 
which kind of comes with that because sometimes people have all these great dreams and my role sometimes is to bring them back to reality of after you've been in your ninth hotel in 14 days, do you think you might be a bit tired of unpacking and repacking your bags? Mm. That whole reality piece is key, but also there's two sides to that. Sometimes I'm the fun police because I've got to bring it back to reality, but then sometimes I've got to take it the other way and bring some inspiration to the trip rather than just going, oh, we want to do Rome, Paris, Venice, the standard stuff. The other part of that is I find myself spending less time on the booking part of a whole. The booking is a transaction. Yeah. It's what happens before and after that. So, and, and you know, with some of your trips that have been quite complicated, there's a lot of planning, research, detail before it. The booking is just straightforward. And then the management of the trip. A lot of people don't think about the management of a trip. So if you've got four weeks around Europe, that is a lot to manage. And that's what a good travel advisor will do is make sure behind the scenes that everything is working like it should. Yep. Well, I know when we've been away, when we're traveling to Europe last year, I remember getting a message from you saying, Kayla, your daughter, her flight will be delayed. And then like five, 10 minutes later, Kayla messages us, oh, I think my flight's delayed, right? <laughs> um like you're pretty hands-on in regards to your business. Um, yeah. is that is that been a key focus for you? Yes. Well, and actually two reasons. One's a selfish reason. Well, not really a selfish reason, but the first reason is when it's your business and your name's on it and travel is a complicated beast, you've got to make sure that everything is sorted. Like you've got to have high detail. But the other part of it is you know, if something goes wrong with a trip, it's my mobile that call that gets called, right? So would I rather spend extra time pre-trip or during trip to make sure things are going as they should? Or would I rather get the odd phone call at 2 a.m. with a customer stranded somewhere in the USA or Africa or, or somewhere? Yep. So I take a very proactive approach to make sure that the detail is there and I rarely, I can't remember the last time I got contacted overnight by someone that's had a drama somewhere. That would be six months at least. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and it's, it's always going to happen at some stage, but I had, I had a customer actually in February message me saying they couldn't find their transfer driver in, I think it was just Paris airport. And I'd reconfirmed that that day with the transfer company, yep, we'll be here, blah, blah, blah. And the customer's saying, no, the transfer driver's not here. And that's frustrating because I've done as much as I can, but he ended up turning up 15 minutes later. But It's interesting as well, we were talking recently after the trip that Trace and the kids and I had, how post-COVID now it's hard because as a travel agent you want to organise transfers and you want to make the trip as seamless as possible, right? But the problem is you're putting kind of your trust in other people's hands. We've had this, you know, discussion since I've come back from the US. It's interesting. The quality of transfers now, I think, are a lot lower than when I've travelled over the last 10 years. Yeah. In, in the States, definitely. I think in Europe, they seem to be better. Okay. But I think the States has gone a bit downhill in a lot of regards. If you think the hotels in the States are generally a lower standard. If you stay at a Marriott in Australia, it's a five-star hotel. In the States, a Marriott is rated four stars. Yeah. And that's just an example of how the, the quality of the States, unless you're paying big dollars, the quality of what you get in the States, I think, has gone downhill a bit. Yeah. And the, the prices for... Travel, especially for accommodation, have just gone through the roof. Mm, absolutely. So. Yeah, those key places, New York, Boston, LA is up, is right up there. Hawaii is... For a moment there, I thought you were just reading my past itinerary. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't go to Hawaii. <laughs> Mark, I was going to ask, obviously you've said inspire you is the catch line or the tagline for 
uh, mind and body travel. How do you inspire more people in the you know years ahead to to focus more on their wellness retreats, kind of inspiring them to refocus, refresh, and re- rejuvenate through travel? Ooh, there's lots of ways that people can do that. The challenge is getting people to commit. So I can try and inspire as much as I can, and I you know I want to get my uh, my message out there more. So, you know, I think over the next few years I will ramp up how I get that message out, how I try to, I guess, connect with more potential clients that I can make a difference with regards to how they travel and what they get out of travel. The challenge is, particularly with, you know, we've talked a lot about retreats, is everyone says they want to go on a retreat, but when it comes to the point of, commitment of going, I'm going to use my one week of my precious annual leave to spend three or $4,000 on a retreat in Bali, 99% of people actually scurry away and go and book a traditional holiday. So how do we make wellness travel less scary and confronting is probably one part of it. How I see I can make a different series by getting people more comfortable with it by including different components on a traditional trip that might include a wellness component or a wilderness or adventure part that just starts to get people comfortable with traveling like that. I think that's, that's the way to make a difference over a longer period of time is just, just to start and almost gradually with your clients do that. Do you think there's an opportunity and a responsibility for workplaces, for organisations to start looking at this sector for their for their employees, for their team members? There's heaps of opportunities. One frustration I have is the conference and events market. And the conference model has not changed in 30 years that I've been going to conferences. You have welcome drinks. There's normally a fair bit of alcohol. The food may not be fantastic for nutritious. The next day, it's a conference in a big conference room, round tables of 10, speakers, workshops, maybe a bit of networking at lunch. And then the night is a gala dinner where tables of 10, you know, and it's just, it's kind of like nothing's changed. And I don't think we know how to change as a corporate society and, I'd love to inspire companies to really challenge that. Like, why do you need to do that model? It's it's what we've always done. Why can't you do something totally different? What about doing an alcohol-free conference? Yep. That would scare the bejesus out of most companies because they'd go, there'll be a revolt, right? <laughs> but if you, if, if you actually, as your leadership team said, okay, if we did a conference without alcohol, what would that conference need to look like for people to go, that's the best conference I've ever been to? It would actually put more onus on how you design that conference. Yep. And that's a good thing. Mm. Rather than I think alcohol at conferences is this, it's not a babysitter, but it's like this thing that, oh, we'll just put on a DJ put or a band. Everyone will have a few drinks and the night will take care of itself. So there's opportunity there. And then getting out of boardrooms, out of function rooms, get out, get outside in nature, get people active. What are you trying to achieve from your conference anyway? That's probably a good place to start. Yep. And the benefits, I think, if organisations actually moved into that kind of thought process is that I think it would improve retention, improve morale, team culture. We could probably talk for hours on the benefits I just would love to see more organisations take that Hmm. that focus. I have this canoe concept. It's the difference between, say you've got a leadership team, executive team of 12 and you're doing an executive retreat and you're sitting in a boardroom, whiteboard, butcher's paper and you're workshopping how you're going to overcome some challenges in your business or hit your goals. What if you paired, a, paired two people up in five canoes 
gave them a couple of questions that they need to ponder and send them out on a lake for four hours or whatever and see what they come back with and not giving them much of a brief. This is what we've got to overcome. Talk about it. I reckon you get a better outcome than this typical forced corporate solutions in a boardroom or function room where you're kind of just doing the same old thing and you're saying the the stuff that you know is going to please your boss or whatever it is. How do we break the mold in that whole corporate space I think is massive. I think you've just come up with another arm for mind and body travel. Yeah. <laughs> it's got lots of arms, hasn't it? Yes. My, my vision for the company does have quite a few arms. So. so we've talked on corporate travel. We've talked on family travel. Obviously, you and I both did the Overland track with our brother as well with the group last late last year. What's the benefits and why should people get out and do these wilderness treks, these adventure hikes? It's interesting that you bring up the Overland track because the last couple of weeks, it is speaking to me. I feel like I need to go back. And for me, on the track, you know, when we were doing that six days or any wilderness trek, just the sense of freedom. We don't, we don't have a sense of freedom in day-to-day life. Mm. We are trapped in work, family, expectations, doing what we think that we're supposed to be doing, overwhelmed by information. And if you go out on a, a trek where you you're not looking at your phone every five minutes because it doesn't work. That's a good start. Especially if you drop it into the waterfall. Uh, yes. <laughs> so there's some good repairers, phone repairers in Launceston, I hear, Steve. <laughs> yeah, expensive ones. So, and I think, you know, com- camaraderie on those treks, you know, group of 10 people and different conversations, you're giving more space for conversations, you're giving more space for reflection. I think that whole mind and body piece when you're out there is amazing. Leading up to a trek I think is great as well because you're setting yourself a goal. Who doesn't need a goal to get their health, their fitness, maybe get them inspired, working towards something? Yeah, it's. I think the benefits are probably priceless. Yeah. And if you look at um, the Overland track, obviously it's quite well regarded globally. What's a couple of reflections that you had on the experience of the Overland track? Reflections on the track that I need to do it more often, need to do that sort of stuff more often. It's a good reflection. Uh, I was probably thinking about how I should move to a cabin in the woods. But no, it does allow you to think about what's, what's important, I think is the biggest reflection you have when you're giving yourself some space like that, what's important in life, you kind of, you know, when you're out on the track, it doesn't matter what type of car you drive, what type of house you live in, what title you have on your business card. That means squat out there. But I think that's the best reflection is that we're all human. We all need inspiration. We all need support. We all need I don't have time for ourselves, spend on ourselves. For me, that's the whole perspective. That's the biggest piece of reflection there. It's like recharging the internal battery, isn't it? Absolutely. I think I used to say when I'm out there, I feel like I'm a Nissan Leaf plugged into a Tesla supercharger. Yep. Just uh, it's interesting when being out in wilderness, overland track, I've done it a couple of times now, but I know sometimes we'd be sitting around having good conversations and chatting and, I'd sit there and go, anything could be happening in the world right now and we wouldn't have a clue. Mm-hmm. Just that weightlessness that comes from just being free, like yeah. jumping in a cold lake or, you know, in a waterfall or it's there's just this, there isn't that, that life pressure and that stress, whether it's family, work, friends, whatever else is happening on the world, what's happening on uh, social media. It, it's just not there and you can actually just almost hear yourself think whereas in the normal world you can't no absolutely i think my favorite day on the overland track was pelion mount mount ossa day yeah because you're walking along this sort of ridge and plains you could just see scenery as far as the eye could go and that was the 
when I think about freedom on that track, that's that's that moment of just being able to look at that amazing scenery down there. It's almost like a bit of a Grand Canyon. Yep. Yeah, you just, just feel uh, alive. it's like a like a pinch yourself. Yeah. You know, you, you kind of pinch yourself and just I catch myself and I know on that track I caught myself kind of just smiling because I was just looking around going, This is awesome. Obviously I'm doing it with my my two brothers and the first overland track that you organized in November 21, I did with our sister, which was a great experience as well. So to have had that experience, I think the first group would have liked the weather that we had as the second group a year later. But uh, as we we're heading along, taking all these pictures, Marky, I remember saying to you, you're going to have to put a disclaimer on your marketing uh, <laughs> from this trip. Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah. No, awesome. Well, Mark, Thanks for sharing today. It's been awesome. Obviously, we've we've had many a chat over the years and many a hike as well, but it's been good to touch on those things. And I think, you know, some of those elements there really kind of gets people to think, think around travel, think around their work, business, even looking at some of those factors of, I suppose, not, not driving themselves to burnout. And I think that the retreats, the wellness, thinking about travel is a big, big player in that as well as we we kind of speed up and even get more into travel. For those that want to connect with you, how do, how do they best connect with you? Well, look, social media is good, probably the best, mind and body travel on Instagram and Facebook, email info at mindandbodytravel.com and then the website mindandbodytravel.com. Pretty easy to find. Yeah, I'm, you know, you talk about that travel coach role. I'm always happy to have a conversation and just see how I can help people get more out of their travel. And more doesn't mean more it means more value more experience and sometimes that can mean less yep yep well it definitely sounds like a lot more people would need mind and body to inspire them so thanks for the chat today and i'm sure we'll catch up again all right thanks steve appreciate it thanks bro Are you planning your next holiday? Let the team at Mind & Body Travel inspire you. With a focus on wellness and well-being, the team at Mind & Body Travel can assist you whether you're looking to attend a retreat, test yourself on an adventure, tick off that bucket list trip, or just create a travel itinerary that includes all that you want in a holiday while taking into account all that your mind and body needs. Revolutionising the way people look at holidays and travel, they believe that travel should deliver nourishment for your soul, clarity for your mind, and renewed focus upon your return. So you ready to take off? Then it's time to check in with the team at Mind and Body Travel. Just visit www.mindandbodytravel.com. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. It's been great to have you along for the ride. Remember to hit subscribe and share this episode with a friend. Maybe just one person you think could benefit from what was just shared. Also, if you haven't connected with me yet, you can find me on Instagram at the Steve Hodgson and also share underscore underscore podcast. I'll catch you on the next episode.